This week, we have the first part of a conversation with A.H. Almas, or also known as Hamid when we're speaking with him personally. And he started the school of the Diamond Approach or the Diamond Path, the Ridwan School. And when we were talking about this, Roger said, and Roger, as you probably grasp by this point, is a pretty learned, deep guy. He said that he thought that Hamid was one of the great sages, not only of our time, but of all time. So buckle your seatbelts and open your hearts and your minds and let's go. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh and our co-host is John Dupuy. And with us today is a guest who I'm truly delighted and honored to have with us to discuss his work. That is Hamid Ali. And perhaps one way of giving a background to Amid's amazing work is to just take a step back and take a look at the context of our times, particularly the spiritual times. I'm based in San Francisco, where all the world's spiritual traditions are available. And we tend to forget how rare this is in human history, to forget the fact that throughout most of history, anyone who examined or practiced anything other than the state-sanctioned tradition was in grave, grave danger of ending up on a funeral pyre. And looking back, I can't think of a time since Alexandria 2,000 years ago when there was another time when so many of the world's traditions were available. There are a small number of people who are attempting to look across these traditions and find commonalities as well as their uniquenesses. And there are still smaller number who are integrating these and systematically integrating with contemporary psychological research. Um, notable people include, of course, Ken Wilber and our guest today, Amid Ali. And Amid is, has not only done extraordinary intellectual synthetic work, but is the creator of a, a school, a spiritual school, a a complete path. And it's very rare to found a complete path, particularly one which is set up to perpetuate over time to train teachers systematically. And yet this is what Hamid has done. The Ridwan school and the so-called diamond work, as he calls it, flow out of his own direct experience and realization, but they're informed by the world's spiritual traditions and practices. So Hamid is very rare in creating a, a spiritual path, a school, a body of literature, which of enormous synthetic scope. I'm going to try to pick up just the part of his literature that I have, and, and we're not going to try to cover all these today, but I would like to focus on two of his most recent books, which are my favorites. They're Runaway Realization and The Alchemy of Freedom. And they're my favorites partly because they're so rare in what they teach and, and speak about, partly also because 
Amita spent decades laying out an extraordinary synthesis and a progressive path of realization in his school. And in these books, he steps off his own map, as he uses his own words. He goes beyond his own prior teachings, public teachings, and even, as I understand it, his school teachings, to step back to a larger context, which he calls the fourth turning or the view of totality. So that's a way of trying to do, give an overview or a context for this remarkable man and the, the body of uh, work and literature and teaching and inspiration he's given. On a more personal note, Amida has, uh, well, I haven't been a member of his school. I have been deeply touched and inspired by your work, Amida, and the, the gifts you've given in so many ways and the depths uh, you've opened for so many of us. So for me, this personally is a very meaningful opportunity to dialogue with you in this way. And thank you so much for being with us. As I look across your work, it seems that the cutting edge, your cutting edge and your cutting practice is one of inquiry direct inquiry into experience and thereby into the fundamental nature of reality and realization. Is that a fair characterization? And could you expand on that? I think you're right, uh, Roger. Good to be here first and talk with you. The approach I use, the kind of contemplation meditation I call inquiry, because it is a kind of a questioning or a questioning curious attitude about what is happening to understand it and penetrate its whatever underlies it, whatever implied by it as deeply, as completely as possible. And what we find in this path is that the inquiry is basically opens up uh, the experience to its potential, to what's implied in it, because all of our experiences, all of our being is interconnected. There's nothing separate from another. So it's not like we need to get rid of one thing to get to the another thing. No, the thing, the surface is connected to the depth. You know, it's meaningful to the depth. By understanding it, connect us to what, something deeper or other than it. So it is a far-ranging inquiry because I just inquire what's happening in experience and perception and uh, other people and question and my studies. All, all of them are connected, which bring up sort of thing I'm interested to explore. And exploration also I know, is really guided by a force that's coming from the deepest recesses of being that is itself is really guiding the inquiry, the questioning, and the, and the direction of what, what questions come up, what experiences arise as a response to the questions. Because the, the answers to the questions are experiences, they're not words, usually. But I find the method, this method satisfying, fun, and you could do it all the time. You don't have to have a particular uh, formal you know, practice session 
to do it. Although I've formulated many ways for a student to do them in a, some kind of formal practice session. But basically the practice is ongoing. Oh. And so, as I see it, you inquire into your experience and you teach students and all of us, those who read your books, to inquire very deeply into experience. And there's a premise underlying that, it seems, that, that reality, that living being, as you call it, is inherently we can trust that at a fundamental level, we can trust living being to unveil itself, reveal itself, open us to ever greater possibilities and depths. Is yeah, that that's correct in terms of, it's implied, what I call it basic trust, I mean inherent trusting in reality that we're actually born with. It might get sort of narrowed because of experience, but there's basic trust in reality and consciousness that not only it is good, it will be fine for us, but it will take us to what is good for us, what we need to learn. Reality is self-revealing. And one, in some sense, it just inherently reveals itself whenever the opportunity is present. Yeah. And I think back to my earliest uh, explorations of experience, which occurred in psychotherapy, and I was very fortunate to be with a gifted therapist. And what I, I think perhaps one of the greatest gifts I came out of that with was the, the recognition that the mind is not something, and our experience is not something that we have to approach with fear or distrust, as most people do, but rather that give, if we bring awareness to the mind and our experience, the mind is self-healing, self-actualizing, self-directing, self-transcending. But as I have read your work, I've come to appreciate that, uh, no, that needs to be expanded, that one of the points you make, and particularly in these two books, uh, Runaway Realization and The Alchemy of uh, Freedom, is that motivation matures through various levels and that we start with the sense that we're doing it. And then more and more it becomes a recognition. Uh, you know, there's the old conundrum, is it good works or grace? Well, <laughs> are they even different? And you speak very eloquently to that. Yeah, and that's what I call the paradox of practice. And all, you know, people who practice, all the paths of practice, you know, the, the masters know that the practice by itself doesn't do it. That uh, frequently the practice brings you to the point of seeing you can't do it. You know, I remember one of my meditation teachers when we asked, what is the purpose of meditation? He said, hopelessness. When <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you realize you're helpless and hopeless, then, then something, something happens. Because the method is not exactly what the, the method is, way of approaching it until exhaust itself. And then you stop. You, you really come to a place where you don't try to go anywhere. You give up without it being a despondency. 
you give up by recognizing our objective helplessness, the helplessness of the individual mind to actually penetrate reality. And there seems to be the, what we'd say in the Christian tradition is grace functioning there as we get to the hopelessness of our own condition and our own minds, something happens that is way beyond ourselves. And I've been reading uh, the philosopher's songs. I just finished it. And I can only read about four or five pages because each page is another illumination. And I have to sit back and absorb that. Uh, One of the first things that grabbed me when you talked about initial activation of a spiritual experience and that happened to me when I was 11. And that just changed the whole course of my life. Either, in your words, I was in hot pursuit of God or God was in hot pursuit of me. And there's a subtle difference there. But it just it just changed everything. I was never the same. I could never get that experience of God is everywhere. God is love. And God is real. Oh, my God, why didn't they tell me this in church? You know, and it made me wonder as you talk about people say, when was your enlightenment experience? And you go, which one? What was your initial activation experience? And what was that like? My initial activation experience is recognizing presence of awareness, the authentic presence of being that is what recognize what I am, and recognizing it at the same time. That is the true essence of all human beings, that connects all human beings. And remember that, you know, late 60s, something like that happened. It wasn't in a meditation or anything, it just happened in life. And for a few days, I mean, it isn't, it isn't what most people talk about, it wasn't transcendent. It was a very embodied, like, this is what is real about me and about human being when we really know ourselves. It's a living present, we could call spiritual, but it is like, this is what I call in one of my books, you recognize it as other, meaning it's really different from anything I've known about myself and reality. And how old were you, Hamid, at that point? Was that? How old were you chronologically when you had this, this first activation? Uh, I might have been late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, yeah. yeah it wasn't early. I, I wasn't consciously spiritual till in my 20s. Mm. I was a scientist before that. Well, it still, <laughs> it still shows. And... I had another question. I This book has just been, anyway, it's been an incredible spiritual journey for me to get through it. And it brought so many things together. And your ideas that, uh, to me, it, it's, you know, we're both Roger and I are very, very steeped in the teachings of, of Ken Wilber. And I think what how it came to me is that this was that step beyond second tier, beyond uh, um late second tier, I've stopped calling it colors because they keep changing, to get into that third tier. And what you're teaching seems to transcend uh, the dual and the non-dual, transcends both of them and brings them together in a a whole new package that is incredibly powerful. And it's almost like the jump, we say, an integral from the first tier to second tier well, the leap to this third tier or this this stuff that's coming through you in this book 
it's just that shockingly brilliant and and game changing to experience this. And I like the way that you you know said hierarchies is often necessary. It's part of it, but at this particular thing, it all becomes everything is a hologram. God is in everything, everywhere, and all of this. And we're going to speak about the mystery, but that that certainly impacted me and did not negate the work I've been doing for years, but just brought it together in in an extraordinary manner. And Sri Aurobindo once said, I read, that his practice was writing. So I wondered what it's like for Hamid. Did you have all these ideas together or did they start falling or coming into place or something was, some higher source was coming through you? I I don't have them together. Uh, They just come through like... uh, one insight and perception comes every few days, and at some point, uh, something that's been thread been going on for weeks or days or something comes together in some kind of experience I didn't expect. You know, and the nice thing about what I call third fourth turning, you know, you call second tier, is that uh, the kind of openings, awakening are completely unexpected, unexpected, unanticipated, and thought, because many of them, I never read about them, I never thought about them, I never looked for them, you see, I didn't know they existed. <laughs> it comes, it happens, and makes me say, wow, what happened? <laughs> Reality can't be this way. So for a while, it makes me, I have to explore, find, is this really real? I mean, it's, you know, so it takes a while to authenticate. But the thing about what I found out as a result, you know, very important thing you probably saw in those two books, is that each realization, each awakening has a view. And the view, perspective about reality that expresses the particular experience. Each experience, basically, like if you're a non-dual realization, that makes you see that uh, you develop the view that uh, the universe is one unit, expanded, infinite, and everything is interconnected, and it's all made of consciousness or awareness. Or, and and that is an experience, but also becomes a mental view. And each teaching talk about you like Zokchen, for to talk about the view of Zokchen. It's very important. You have to get the view. And then you get the transmission. And it's natural that there will be a view for any realization. So what happens, I notice, is that when we are in a particular realization, we develop that view, that view might displace our previous view, like the egoic view, but it becomes the new one. But it is a view, and reality doesn't have views. Only a human being can have a view, you see. So the view is the human mind developing it, depending the way reality manifesting itself. So what I found out is it's good to have a view to get the view, but not to take the view to be reality. <laughs> but it is just the view from one way reality manifests itself. Or at least not ultimate reality. In some sense, it is reality, but it is not the TH, you know, capital R reality. Well, I mean, you could call it ultimate. Some teaching take their views as ultimate. 
You know, Veda Vedanta take the non-dual ultimate action, take the thing as ultimate. They, they think that's ultimate, that's it, you got it. And I'm finding out, partly because I explored many of those, that the ultimates were not the same. So, yeah. So the idea is that each realization, any awakened condition, is uh, it's an experiential, immediate, non-conceptual, but it has its view that informs the mind about what reality is. And the mind tends to take that view to be that's how reality is. Holding on to a view becomes a delusion, regardless of the realization. A delusion in the sense it prevents other ways reality can manifest. So, Hamid, what is the, the healthy attitude when you have one of these huge illumination, illuminatory experiences that's just overwhelming? How do you hold that without reifying that and making that the one thing? Well, I mean, you definitely you explore it, you learn about it. It's okay to develop the view, but at some point, you need to, you, after you know understanding it as fully as possible. We need to remember that there might be other things about reality. The deep understanding is that reality is endless in its possibilities, and whatever realization we have, we should not take it to be the final one. And this is a very distinctive perspective of your teaching in a way, because so many traditions take a particular experience or insight or state or realization to be definitive, to be the way, the final realization, the view, the perspective, the understanding of reality. And, and what I, so many of us, I think, love about your your own take is the recognition that reality living being is endlessly creative and can unveil a boundless number of perspectives and possibilities. And, and you describe that as the view of totality, a view or view, a kind of meta perspective, which is open to a boundless number of perspectives. Yes. Yeah. So the view of totality is openness to all views meaning I can take on a view, but I don't have to. So there is a freedom there. I take on a view to learn about it, but I don't have to identify with it. I don't have to, you know, there could be certainty in it that this is real, this is fundamental. But that doesn't mean it is really the end of all. I mean, I... Several times I caught, I was caught into this uh, in this dilemma, believing, well, this is it, I got it, you know, and I was wasn't just mental, I was experientially certain this is reality. And then now it's true, it is reality, but that doesn't mean it's <laughs> <laughs> the only one. <laughs> yeah, reality is much more mysterious and much more rich than that turns out to you know. Yes, and I love that that your view of totality and you allow for endless realizations, endless openings, an appreciation of the boundless creativity of reality, of life, of of, of the Tao, God, however you 
whatever term we want to use to point to that. And, and I want to acknowledge, as far as I understand, it's a very rare perspective. The only other treatment that I know of this or really investigation of this kind of this meta-meta perspective is in Hawaiian Buddhism in the what's what they call the round view, which seems very similar in acknowledging the boundlessness of possibilities and perspectives. Does that does that resonate? How do you see the, the about which kind Hawaiian Hawaiian. Oh. No, Hawaiian Buddhism has a particular view of realization, which is non-dual. It's not the non-dual view. It's a, another view of uh, what I call unilocal, or they call interpenetration, which is instead of everything is unified by having the same fabric as uh, non-duality says, and they say everything is unified because everything is in everything else. And that one particular thing contains all other particular things at all times and space. So the unity is different. But they have that view, that one particular view, mm-hmm. you see? And so it is another view, which okay. for me, and, and, the, and the interesting thing, you know, Roger, is that many teachings, they're really working toward liberation. They want to be free and liberated. And their view gives them that, their liberation. It is liberation, it's freedom from suffering, all of that. But that, although this is part of my, uh, you know, my drive, you know, since I was young, but also my drive also is an understanding reality. I want to know what is reality. That's why I went into the sciences. I want to know what is the truth of things. You know, and um, so I'm still, you know, that's what it is. I want to know the truth as whatever the truth happened to be, you know. And turned out the truth is multifaceted, multi, you know, dimensional, has unexpected turns and twists. Reality really has much more up its sleeve than any human being <laughs> can imagine. And I think the realization that are possible. I think humanity as a whole, we've discovered some of them. We didn't discover all of, you know, there's a lot to come. I don't know all of them. I am still learning. (laughs) (laughs) And this this view of totality gives you a a very different understanding of, of realization that there's no there's no finality that let me try and give my understanding of what you're saying, and then you can elaborate and correct that, that most traditions suggest that, that liberation, freedom from suffering, and many other things is to be found in a particular insight and understanding and, and, and experience. And yours, you're, you're saying that's true, partly true, and there's a deeper freedom in not needing any particular realization, in being open to the fluidity and endlessness of, and variety of realities. Could you uh, correct well, or I mean, elaborate? You know, I, the, the beautiful thing about the view of totality that there's no comparison. You know, there I can see hierarchy, but uh, everything can be looked at. Uh, you know, and. Uh, 
so each view or each realization has liberation. It is liberating and it is sufficient for uh, for somebody who wants a path for liberation. But that also, however, the view of totality make us be more tolerant of other views, open to them. So all views have are real, you know, the genuine teaching, and they bring liberation. And uh, not only that, but they uh, they add, let's say, to our. Uh, you also uh, say that there's no end point. Like I'm enlightened, being that's it. Enlightenment itself evolves. So I think that's incredibly exciting and also very humbling for a lot of people. If you think you you know you got it, well, you did, but you yeah. got that. You know, it keeps moving. It keeps going. It's, that is very liberating in itself. It's awesome. You're right. There, there's just, I mean, it's liberating in a, in a different way, you know. Yes, and, and for me, that was one of the real gifts of these two books. That I <laughs> have a very achieving personality type. Uh, you've just done a new book on the Enneagram, and I'm uh, very much a a three on there, the achieving, the achiever. And by no strange coincidence, I brought that into my spiritual practice and strove mightily for many years to the point of actually ending up, as you said, in despair. But unfortunately, I didn't have your teachings available at the time. And I ended up quite very depleted and took me a number of years to recover from kind of exhaustion of pushing myself too hard. But, but what reading runaway realization and the alchemy of freedom did for me was by pointing to the endless variety of reality and realizations, it stripped away that goal-oriented striving and really allowed an entirely new level of opening to non-doing, which has been very, very helpful, liberating in a way. So that uh, one of the gifts these two books, The Alchemy of Freedom and Runaway of Realization, have given me was your emphasis on the possibility of opening to an end to boundless realizations that th there was no need not be any finality to these, and that there was perhaps an even greater freedom in opening to a, um, a fluidity of perspectives and stances and views. And for me, being such an achievement-oriented type, and even to the point of having burnt out very badly at one stage in my practice, this was so helpful and just felt like a big exhale, a release of, oh, yes. So <laughs> um, I personally am deeply grateful for this, this perspective. It's just been very meaningful and valuable for me. Well, I'm happy to see that you appreciate it because it really, it's more like you end up in a place where you, there's no concern about where we are, what happens to be in the experience. Simply the concern is gone. You know, like, I, am I in this condition, that condition, realized, not realized? It's all insignificant question. It's irrelevant. Divine indifference, I think, in the book. Is yeah. About, yeah, yeah, like wherever we are, it's just reality doing its thing. Even in the dualistic perspective, it's reality. Who else is doing it? 
<laughs> I give up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like God is love. How bad can it get? You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, the non-dual views take an error is not seeing the truth of non-duality. And it's true, the dual view doesn't see the view, the, the place of dual, non-duality. But that doesn't mean it's an error. It is, that's how reality happened to be manifesting itself at that time. And if we take that to be the only view, that's the error. Mm-hmm. It's not oh, yeah. that the way it is is an error. It's, it's holding on to one thing as is turned out to be a really a big error that many people do. And any, it can be any realization and take that. I, I call it delusion. I remember, uh, what's his name? Dogen. Mm-hmm. Saying about one of his uh, talks about delusion after enlightenment. Yes. And that, that's been a very helpful thing and, and quite rare again. I mean, in these two books, you point out that there's this assumption that awakening leads to the end of delusion, and that delusion seems to be endless. It gets more subtle, but there may not be an end to it. Yeah, the delusion can be simply the belief that this is it. There's no <laughs> other thing. Because that's not true. If it's not true, it's a delusion. I got it. You, see? Yeah. you know, Hamid, one thing that was useful for me, because, you know, you use the term true nature a lot, which I've obviously I've heard, but it's never, you know, been that okay. much part of my path. So sometimes when I was working with a particular passage, I was stuck to God instead of true nature. And it's like, hmm, it turned out to be, you know, one of the best, I don't know, teachings or explanation of the nature of God, whatever that is, that uh, it really worked for me. And and it doesn't work all the time, 100% of the time, but often that just, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I'm it. glad it works for you. I mean, yeah. you can call whatever you want. Some people call God or divine being. The Buddhists talk about Buddha nature. You know, I mean, everybody got their thing. It is like, what is the, what's the mystery? the whole thing what is the mystery what what is behind this what makes it happen what makes it be the way it is you know and also the thing in in reality that brings about both liberation and fulfillment meaning we're free from difficulties but we're also fulfilled in the sense a large part of our potential is being actualized and we're living it in our life. And our life is fulfilled. Yeah. And you pointed just a couple of minutes ago to the idea that any experience is still, still reality displaying itself. And from the view of totality, the view of totality kind of undermines a, a traditional hierarchies of you know, certain experiences better than others, uh, seems to open the possibility to, of the recognition of all experience, the most mundane, being as spiritual as what we usually call the most profound. Yeah. 
Because there are realization, for instance, where the perception of things is neither material nor spiritual. Like the, that dichotomy between physical and spiritual fall, falls apart. It's, it's, it turns out it's conceptual. You know, that reality is, is, you cannot say it's spiritual or, or material. However, that is another way. You can say, divide it into there's the spiritual and there's the physical. And that too is, is also workable, but there are others where there isn't. Sometimes I look at reality and I say, well, these walls, are they really consciousness or are they really physical? The question, the answer is, it's neither. It is something mysterious. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No final realization, no final answer. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's the thing. You see, for you, you find it as liberating. For some people, find it unsettling because they want a place to perch. Yes. They settle in it, that's it. I don't have to think anymore. You know, that's very, for people, it's sort of relieving. But, you know, my way doesn't give people that kind of comfort. You know, you have to be comfortable in not having a place to settle. And I call it, you know, what do I call it? I call it like a universal nomad. You know, Travel is part of the journey, part of what's happening. Well, there, there's discovery there's discovery is part of life. Discovery is part of realization. Like what happens when people talk about getting enlightened and they have the experience, then what happens after that? Do they just sit <laughs> feeling enlightened and that's it? <laughs> yeah, and... Uh... And perhaps it's worth just playing with the the very word enlightenment since you brought it up, because as far as I can see, this is one of the most, it's it's really um, a rather poorly defined term. It often conflates, can be used for a particular experience or or for a state or a trait. It can be used for just one particular line of experience, such as a cognitive insight, as opposed to the deeper transformation of personality, and it varies across traditions. I, I think I've come to pref- think that, uh, as we usually use the term, it's a bit too loose, and maybe spiritual maturity is a better better term. Yeah, I, I, that's one reason why I tend not to use the word enlightenment that much. I use words like awakening and realization, things like that, because I can define those more easily. I think someplace, Hamid, you said that there was realization, but enlightenment is when you actually start going out into the world and being of service. That, that in a sense, completes the circuit. It makes realization enlightenment. I think I got that idea from you. I hope I did. It's one well, I actually don't call that enlightenment, but I think, I think that's the completion of realization. Realization is not complete if you can't live it. It's just an experience. I mean, it hasn't completed itself. So that's just true about all paths. That first, you have the realized state or condition. Next is to learn how to live it, how how to be it in your life. 
And that is another stage, which is actually for most paths, as far as I know, is the one that takes longer time. You know, I remember, you know, story about one of the Zen, great Zen master, Madhubin Dogen, I don't know. When the, somebody asked him the end of his life, well, master, how is your realization going? And he said, well, going pretty well, but my body is still, you know, getting used to it. Mm. Yeah. And how do you interpret that? Well, it's, it's not easy to be fully actualized, to live the realized condition, I meaning your body and mind, and your heart, all of it is expressing it as part of it. You are that and also you are expressing the realized condition in all situations of life. You see? Yeah. I mean everyday life. I don't mean just sitting and, med- and teaching and meditating. Mm-hmm. Dear friends, there it was, part one of our conversation with A.H. Almas. Stay tuned for part two. It keeps going and flowing and getting deeper. God bless. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.